Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and I am here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we are back uh, with another episode. Um, this is episode number 70, and um, we're talking about the Enlightenment. Can, can a Christian be enlightened? And this might seem like a weird question um, as... If I'm not mistaken, the Enlightenment was kind of like a time period, right? I mean, that's yep. the, a, a particular time period that we're right now we're out of that. Mm-hmm. So it, it might feel like a weird question, but we actually received this question from a listener, um, and they told us to to read through uh, what is Enlightenment by Immanuel Kant. And um, so, so Nick and I have, have read through this and highlighted some stuff, and are just going to talk. Before. Yeah, so we should disclose to listeners that this is from a East Coast literature professor who is a listener. Yes, and um, so yeah, this is a little bit of a highbrow thing where he basically said, mm. um, "Do you think a Christian should agree with this?" And mm-hmm. specifically his question, I think, re- revolved around the question, to what extent should an individual person ascribe authority to any kind of religious or intellectual leader? So to what extent should a Christian like basically listen to their pastor in, the, in things of God? Does their pastor just tell them what to mm-hmm. believe? Yeah. I think in the case of this particular person who asked the question, who I don't think is a professing Christian, I think he would also say to what extent should we agree with, for example, the scriptures or like the apostle John, right, yeah. as well. And um, for those who haven't read What is Enlightenment by Immanuel Kant, Kant wrote some very long treatises. And as a German writer, he's known for sentences that are incomprehensibly long and difficult to punctuate in translation. I mean, Germans are just known for these like unbearably long sentences. Um, We're trying to read Karl Marx's similar. But um, Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment, is mercifully short. um, And it's a pretty straightforward argument. It's not like it's impossible... It's, mm-hmm. it's not impossible to like read or clarify or, you know. I felt like this translation was pretty readable. I, th- yeah, I thought it was it's, a good It's only 2,500 total words, you yeah. know, so it's not that, it's not that long. So it's very, it's very readable and it's, it's understandable. There's a couple references in it that aren't entirely obvious what he exactly means. But yeah. other than that, it's pretty readable. So, and, and so it is an interesting thing to read. If you haven't read it, it's a good thing to read to just be generally educated yeah. Um, and to understand um, what the Enlightenment thought it was doing a little bit. And what I'll do is I will put the link in the description that will take you to this. Uh, yeah. There's a, a site on, on the Internet. And, and so you can ta- you can read it, pause this, read it, and then come back and, and, and hear what we have to say about this. Yeah. So although we don't technically live in the Enlightenment right now, um, we live in, quote, what, what these folks would have called the age of Enlightenment, meaning that we came uh, out of the supervision of tradition. Yeah. That when you say, what is the truth? People don't say, well, what does tradition say? Yeah. Right. It's that it has built into this idea that we should dare to know things and that we can do that. Right. And that we shouldn't just trust the past and mm-hmm. that therefore intellectual freedom and f- like things like the freedom of speech were necessary for enlightenment to happen because people have to be able to say what they really think. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that's interesting about this essay too is, is that if you come to it as a political progressive, there are some things you'll like really say hurrah to. And then there's other things where you're kind of like, oh, he's not, he's no progressive. And then there's other, if you're like a conservative person, you'll come to be like, oh yeah, I totally agree with that. And then there's other, there's other things that you're like, oh, that's not where I thought that was going. No, I don't think I agree with that. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting um, right. sort of and mix if you're of like, ideas. If you're like a Gen Z who, I, a Gen Z conservative Christian who's trying to figure out what the heck he believes, 
I think I read, I really, as I read through this, I was just, I went all over the, I think I was all over the place mentally. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, some of this I agree with. Some of this I think is insane. And then, and then a lot of the major questions that I had was how the heck am I supposed to relate this to Christianity in any way? Like to, to how Mm -hmm. I, how I have a relationship with Christ, how I have a relationship with, with you as my pastor and how I like things like that. There's all these questions start to come out of this as a Christian. Um, and I yeah. think it'll be interesting for us to talk about that. Yeah, but in that the question of enlightenment is a difficult one. What do you do if the answer to every question isn't whatever we are told the answer is or whatever we are told to do? Yeah. And I think one of the things that people on the right who aren't Trump or like Republicans, but like are, one of the things that we that that um, I see people uh, nervous about on the American left, especially with younger people, is moving back to what Kant calls nunnage or the idea that you're being supervisioned by these guardians and you're like a minor and they know best and you should do what you're told. Because Kant didn't exist in the era of the bureaucratic state, even though Bismarckian Germany was kind of its claim to fame was that it was creating bureaucracies that the modern nation state is based after. But it hadn't come to anything like what we experience now. Nick, do you th- do you find that to be a bit ironic that the left is is nervous about that? In the, because it feels to me like the young Gen Zers and the millennials are subject to the institutions, all, all of the major institutions now, the public school system, the big government, a lot of the large corporations all have the same messaging. And maybe it's not tradition because it's new, but in 50 years, maybe it'll be tradition. Right. Like, doesn't it doesn't that seem a little bit backwards? Yeah. You know, what I either said or meant to say was that that conservatives are concerned about that, that that progressivism seems to be this movement where instead of it being like uh, dare to know this sort of like enlightenment idea that we can think for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves. Modern progressivism seems to believe that those people are dangerous now because they won't do what's necessary for everybody to do. And yeah. so you'll fall into what economists call the tragedy mm-hmm. of the commons. And the vaccine thing was a great example of this. And so is global yeah. warming, right? So yeah. if everybody doesn't get the vaccine, you have some people who don't get it, yeah. they're going to ruin it for everybody, right? Yeah. So, and that's called the tragedy of the commons. What if some people ride the system and don't do what everybody's quote supposed to do, right? Yeah. And then global warming is a similar one. Like if, if we're going to actually prevent catastrophic climate change, Everyone has to get involved in a certain program. And so that program has to be determined by our elites or guardians and then placed on everybody as though we're minors, right? And so yeah. in some ways, um, what Kant calls nunnage or the, like being a minor yeah. under a pr- proposed or supposed guardian who takes care of you and that that's being less than human. In some ways, I think some some collectivists are saying, yeah, but our problems are so big. We don't eat, get each get to decide what the solution is. And then the big bureaucratic group of people who can come to the truth will tell us what it is because we won't know the answer and we need to trust them and do what we're told. Mm. And that mentality, though, it sounds pejorative the way I say it now, if you have massive problems and if those massive problems require everybody to do the same thing, and if most people don't know the right answer, only these experts in groups like bureaucracies can know them, then it basically it makes the opposite argument Kant is making and Kant sounds like a some kind of neoconservative doesn't it feel yeah it I was just say that's it seems to be like what led to the rise of Hitler right yeah in some ways but the, the but that you still end up going back to this question of you like you could have questions where the person in charge is correct yeah yeah is there a good example of that I mean 
historically. I mean, if, if, if like, you know, Greta Thunberg is right or AOC is right about global warming, for example, or climate change, right. then yeah, something has and to be imposed on everybody yeah. if we're all going to survive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, that makes I mean, sense. like, I don't mean to be mean about it, but like, you know, another example of this that's a little less political would be like, um, like high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Killing everybody, yeah. giving everybody diabetes, making everybody obese. Yeah. Or like, or like if if GMOs, like genetically modified foods, right? If those really are creating significant health problems in people, mm-hmm. right? Then like some group of people, like I can't figure that out. That's not like something where like I can like dare to know and yeah. enter into enlightenment. Like, I, yeah. I mean, this is one. In fact, we'll as we'll talk later. I think this is one of the problems with Kant's theory is he assumes that if we all just live in freedom and everybody publishes their truth, that we're all going to grow in enlightenment. And what he didn't realize in 1803 when there wasn't an internet and so on yeah. is that there's a publishing, that's actually there's a not what happens, yeah. right? Yeah. When everybody publishes, yeah. you what you get is chaos. I would love to have him go on like Twitter or Facebook yeah. and just experience the absolute uh, just mess that that this has created. Yeah. But there's something to what he's saying as well that I think that like mm-hmm. – yeah, I agree. And I think I there's think, a lot good here. Yeah, that that there needs to be some sort of pushback at the at the uh, toward to the pushback against the experts or the people, these high right. up enlightened thinkers or whatever. Because uh, I mean, they can be they can be wrong just like anybody else. But but one thing that I thought, well, I guess where, where do you want to start here? Because yeah, I, I, mean, I think we might just right. answer that question: Can a Christian be enlightened in the sense that yes. Kant says? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think and, that some of his questions, even though they're like two centuries old, are actually still 100% relevant. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I've well, said in our notes, yes, we a Christian can be enlightened. That is to use one's own. So here's the definition of enlightenment I'm using from Kant. That we use our own our own understanding without another's guidance. Where we say, I need to listen to myself, not to somebody else. I can trust right. myself in my own thinking Rather than this other person that's talking to me, like I where should people thinking, behave that way? Yeah, I, I assume we're the what you're thinking about right now is is we're taking away our relationship with God in this because it, it's not necessarily possible to use your own understanding without God's guidance. If you're like Calvinist, right? That I mean, how am I supposed to? That's what I wondered. Yeah. That was kind of the. Oh yeah, I one don't of the ways I will at. say no to Kant's proposal is that I think he has a unhelpfully limited understanding of the human person. Yeah, yeah. That he thinks we're more objective than we actually are, yeah. and he thinks that that objectivity that he thinks he's achieved can actually mm-hmm. be experienced very broadly in hum- among the different yeah. humans on planet Earth, and sure. that hasn't proved to be true in the environments that we've created. On Earth so but because one thing that I wrote down is that Nick, you mentioned at some point, I don't remember when, but that people with an IQ lower than like 160 can't live outside, think outside of ideologies, helps them cope. And it feels like Kant is saying yeah, that ideologies. About, yeah, it's actually quite a lot of people because it's like under about 110. I mean, you get to you get down uh, to like an IQ of 90 and people don't read and follow directions. It's too it's too abstract <laughs> for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, well, and, and so I so what I've written down is that Kant and that's is saying like that a huge portion of the American public and those people vote. Yeah. And right now, oh, in America, they, they, they're they, more than the margin. 
Yes, right. And they, and they work in a lot of really important industries that, that mm-hmm. we need. I mean, a, a lot of the trades and... and yeah, those and people are that, super important people. Yeah. But like in yeah. terms of like, can such people become, quote, enlightened in the way the way Kant imagines? Right. I mean, I, mean, I can't probably. Not in well, everything. I mean, part becomes, of the issue... Go okay, ahead, so Andy, before we get into all everything that's wrong with Kant's argument, I feel yeah. like we need to say the yeses. Okay, okay. Yeah, you have you four know what I mean? yeses. Because like, there's a lot yep. of stuff that I think we should agree yep. with. And some of our listeners yeah. that have progressive instincts and so on, there's part, I mean, like, you know, I always say, like, if if there isn't a part of you that's progressive, that's probably bad. Hey, but if let progressivism me just say this. controls your thinking, that's yeah. probably bad. I'll, I'll say this as a caveat, or not a caveat, I guess just like as a... Just to tell this to people right now, this is the day after election day, and I'm probably yes. fired up about how like mid <laughs> midterms went and all this stuff. So yeah. I'm obviously conservative, and people know that. But I, yes, there, and there was no I red have, wave, which you predicted. I predicted but, there would not be a red wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was very skeptical there was going to be a red yeah. wave. Right. Um, right. Yeah, mainly because but of the changes in voting, in my view. Yeah. But yes. Right. Um, but yeah, I I thought that. I mean, I don't want to say that I'm like cheering for the Republicans, but mm-hmm. I did want Ron Johnson to win for a number of reasons. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> he had been very – his responsiveness to immigration issues that we had as a church was much better than our, his Democratic um, – the other Democratic senator in Wisconsin. Oh, Even though Mandel. like the Democrats are supposed to be so pro-immigration, we got yeah. no help from them, but we did get help from – Ron Johnson's office. Ron Johnson's office is also not discriminatory against Christian believers or other people of religious faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it he does not lead with a secularistic bias, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And um, and also he was one of the only people who fought against the vac- uh, vaccines being the only real treatment for COVID. That there were lots mm-hmm. of other treatments for COVID that we should be exp- mm-hmm. looking at, and mm-hmm. that the medical establishment shouldn't be taking hospital rights and treatment rights away from people who were trying to treat their patients according to their best understandings of medicine. Yeah, and which gets into the, like the questions about whether or not quote evidence based medicine is the best way to run medicine mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I think Ron Johnson has been on the right side of all those issues. And in some yeah. cases, that COVID one, he might have been literally the only one on the right side of that issue. So I just have a really hard time. And, and when I, and yeah. when I, I, some of the stuff that they ran here in Wisconsin was that like, he was against, um, uh, abortion, like, um, exceptions to the abortion ban relative to incest and, um, rape yeah. and life of the mother. But I, apparently what that means is, is that the 18 something law, 1800 something law, which is our most recent law on abortion in Wisconsin, which should have been updated during Roe versus Wade by the legislature if they had been doing their job, is the law of the land. And so either you're for it or against it. And and Johnson said that he was for it. I'm ass- I assume what that right. meant was until we uh, replace it with a law that also bans abortion in most cases. But we're going to leave this one in place until we get a good law. Yeah. Right. Which I but think pe- is reasonable. People cherry pick, cherry pick stuff out of that. And yeah, most yeah, of the stuff that they said about the Republican candidates, I, as far as I could tell, weren't true. Yeah. And oh, the yeah. stuff said about the Democratic candidates, as far as I could tell, were true and actually were the things the Democratic candidates were actually running on. Like yeah. that Mandela Barnes wanted to decrease the prison population yeah. by 50 percent. I mean, I, my understanding is that that like that's I mean, that's part of his belief about how to make Wisconsin better. It's like it's right. a feature, not a bug in his mind. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, he toned it down for the election because some people won't like that. But he absolutely right. does believe that and believe. And listen, I'm for right. all kinds of prison reforms. And maybe mm-hmm. that would include having fewer people in prison. Maybe not 50%, but 
Right. But well, let's the, not pretend the, he's not saying that. Right. I you think know? the big problem is that the Republicans assumed assumed that people would connect with um, like Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes being in a close race is, is insane. Mandela Barnes is like a socialist. Like he's yeah. crazy. He's I mean, like he, did have the, he was lieutenant governor, though. Right. So like he has yeah. some credentials for being in politics these Popularity last four years. I think that's why they thought he was of stature to win. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you want to do a podcast on the midterms or no. the? Uh, yeah. No. Cunt? Let's. Just, I'm just, I was just trying to say that, like, I'm probably coming into this with a, a yeah, big frustration. Yeah. And so, so you have four yeses here, and what you have, you have yes, 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 and no. So the answer to can a Christian be enlightened is yes, 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 and no. So let's start yeah. with the first four yeses and yeah. and talk about those. Yeah. So yes, a Christian can be enlightened in the, in this Kantian sense of like leaning on your own understanding rather than another's guidance mm-hmm. when um, you're dealing with an equal, mm-hmm. right? So like if the, the so-called guardian is an equal, mm-hmm. like the other person who like you would defer to them is an equal or an inferior, mm-hmm. then to submit to them and their understanding is to be mentally servile, which isn't good. Yeah. I was thinking about how you've been talking over the last couple of months about servility and mm-hmm. how this this whole thing directly relates to that conversation in certain ways. And so that was that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. But once you recognize that, what it means is that the converse is also true. That if mm-hmm. somebody is your intellectual yeah. superior in a particular subject, then to yeah. rebel against their conclusions may well be rebellion. Right? Yeah. Well, so there's this, this whole saying to- that a scholar should be believed in their field. Yeah. Because they know more than you about it. Yeah. Yeah. Does this have to do with the, I, yeah, it's, it's in here. Um, uh, somewhere I thought you had written earlier about codependency. Yeah. Um, we'll get that, to that. That's, that's okay. the third one. Yeah. So then the All second right. one is we should use our own understanding rather than another's guidance when honestly expressing ourselves and knowing ourselves. So there are some people who like other people basically are telling them how to feel what they like. Like there are certain things about the development of our personality where we have to listen to ourselves or we aren't a self. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dad, you like fishing, but I don't like fishing. Right. right. I just don't like it. Like yeah. my oldest daughter doesn't like chocolate. I don't know what to do with her. Like I, yeah. I do not understand that concept, but yeah. I like that. She told me she didn't like chocolate. Right. Because she should be honest with herself and be able to tell me who she knows loves chocolate. And she wants my approval. Her to tell me that I'm glad she tells me that, right? Because like, is that I true, or is that just like an example? I, no, that's literally true. Yeah, oh my like star doesn't like chocolate, but so that. God bless her. She likes a lot of things, though. I mean, yeah. she eats meat. Come on, I'd say hey, it was look, my, my dad. No, listen, can't if my eat daughter chocolate. was a vegetarian, I want her to tell me and say, "I don't yeah. like meat. I don't want to eat meat. I don't want to kill animals." So, okay, so a, a few months ago, I was listening to a guy who had walked away from the faith, and he was talking about why he did, and mm-hmm. he believed that. When we identified with certain things in the faith, it actually stunted our growth as people. And he said he listened to this book called Honoring the Self by mm-hmm. Nathaniel Brandon, who was like one of the early like self-esteem people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, if this guy, if that was like really significant, this guy losing his faith, like this idea of the self, I want to listen to this book, right? Um, and so I, I listened to it and I really liked it. Like I'm, I've been like, I've been like on the, on the record for years of like basically hating the self-esteem movement. But oftentimes when things get popularized, they're much worse than the the per- first person who talked about it. Right. And basically what he said is you have to, you have to be able to trust yourself enough to say, I like this. I don't like that. Hmm. I think this is right. I think that is wrong. 
Like you can't just take on whole cloth other people's beliefs and opinions and let them define who you are. And if you can't admit to yourself who and what you are, if you can't, you can't become a self, you're not honoring the fact that you have a self and you have to do that. And I was like, yeah, this, of course that's right. Yeah, of course that's right. And he's basically, was basically talking to people who for one reason or another had been in this kind of what Kant calls a nunage or somebody like a, some guardian taking care of them as a minor in yeah. the development of their personality. So, okay. So the, the way I I've think, got, yeah, go ahead. And so I think one of the ways in which a Christian can quote be enlightened is all of us as selves have to develop and mm-hmm. learn to like, in some ways, trust ourselves to be a self. Mm-hmm. We can't necessarily trust that everything we want is going to be good and righteous or in line with God's will, but to deny that we exist and that we have desires that we have, or that we like, if you do that too much, we don't even develop as a human being to have a self for Jesus, the Christ to sanctify and direct and shape. Mm-hmm. And we become like shadows. I'm working with a, a lady right now who came out of fundamentalism and women were so diminished in the, in the wing of fundamentalism that she was a part of that. She's like 50 years old and she doesn't know what she likes. Hmm. She doesn't know how she feels. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. that's, she's like, I literally, I'm 50 years old and I'm figuring out who I am. I'm finding a self for myself yeah. in Christ. I'm not throwing away my faith, but like, I, I'm just finding my own, I have to find my own voice. I have to know who I am. And I think that Kant is right. There's a way of so outsourcing our very being and self to other people mm-hmm. that we just aren't even a self. And Kant actually talks about this in relationship to women. He thinks mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing that most women in his day are not educated, don't have their own opinions. He thinks that it keeps them from developing their self and keeps them from being enlightened people. And I agree with him. Do you think that this is going that there's there's uh the the fifty year old woman who's been in um fundamentalist fundamentalism for for her whole life and now is just starting to understand what she likes and what she enjoys and how she feels about things? Mm-hmm. I've found that like that i found, I think that's gonna be true about my generation in fifty years. Do you oh, see maybe. any sort of i mean if we don't i mean i I really think this if we don't kill ourselves or if something else terrible doesn't happen to us because uh, one thing i've been trying to think through is like I, well i do believe that everybody obviously can have their own opinions and feel feel what they 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 feel um i might be more slanted towards the idea that uh my generation i guess pe- people there are people who are followers and there are people who are leaders inherently and maybe i'm wrong about this but i just feel like my generation is full of so many group thinkers that it's hard mm-hmm. for me to actually see clearly into how some of the people that I know that I'm really close friends with and people that I've, I've known my whole life, um, they literally cannot make their own decision about anything. Everything mm-hmm. is totally and completely decided for them by what everybody else is doing because they're deathly yeah. afraid of getting outside of that. And there's no like mm-hmm. pastor or person like that saying to them that they have to do this. So it's a bit different than fundamentalism, but there is institutions and things like that. Oh, yeah, I, I totally Indeed agree. Too. Like there, there are a number of different definitions of fundamentalism. Do you know how like people use lots of different definitions of fascism? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're a nationalist, you're a fascist, right? But if you're a socialist, you're not. Even though fascism was a socialist political view, right? It literally, the fascist is the bundle of sticks tied together because we're one people, right? There's everything is inside the state. Nothing's outside the state. Like fascism is literally socialism, but it was also nationalistic, right? Fascism was nationalistic rather than like communism was 
was socialism yeah. that was global. Yeah. Fascism yeah. was socialism was nationalistic. So people see nationalism, they go, oh, that's fascism, right? But it's not. Yeah. It Socialism is fascism, right? So yeah, yeah like uh, just like fascism has a number of definitions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch yeah. of things to do. And I think groupthink has a number of definitions too. Well, because well, there are some ways in which we think with each other and that's healthy. And then there's other ways in which we think with each with each other and it's not healthy. Yeah. What are we supposed to? OK, so, so I guess where I was going with that was was less of like, yeah, I understand that, that there's different definitions and there's these two situations are similar, but different in certain ways. What, uh, how maybe this is a question that Emmanuel can't. This is obviously the question that he's trying to explore. My question is, and I, I don't necessarily know if I even believe that people, some people can get out of the, is it nonage? Is that what it's called? Nonage, yeah. Nonage. I, I don't even know if that's possible. Like, do, don't you think that there's just some people who are meant to just be followers? And because, and maybe this is just my to bias. To a certain extent. Okay. Yes. Ex- so there that. are some systems in societies that are too complicated for people to recreate. And I think that people with very high IQs are in that are in that now, mm-hmm. you know, but then there's other things like basic concepts of justice, how you can't treat your neighbor, whether or not you should tell the truth. Some yeah. of those more simple concepts can be possessed by us individually and we can make individual decisions about them. And those are the basis for our personal relationships, which is supposed to be this main focus of our life. But like mm-hmm. other things in our, in our world just gets, are getting increasingly complicated so that most people cannot handle them by themselves. Yeah, and that's, that's, I think that's by design, both negatively and positively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most people that can't may- bake bread anymore. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. You know what I mean? Pat- like that's one of the yeah. simplest things you can possibly do cooking wise. Mm-hmm. And most people don't know how to do it. Bro. We I have would outsource have no literally everything. Yeah. Which is, this was one of the, this is what, ah, uh, well, tell me, tell me if I'm going uh, t- too far ahead, but it, but I wrote down, it seems like the enlightenment created the very types of people that Kant says that the, uh, the says is the problem in the first place. Yeah. That's an argument. Yeah. That's, like, that's skipping ahead in like the notes I made, but yeah, yeah I, I agree that that, I mean, I think I read somewhere recently that um, the founding fathers created a written constitution so that the whims of the masses wouldn't control us. But then we created a judiciary that became powerful. And now the whims of a small judiciary control us. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like in, in what is enlightenment, Kant's like, look, if, if everybody can publish and we have freedom of speech, then everybody will become this like well-read individual person. I think Kant imagined that like only like really good scholarly stuff would be written and published, which I don't know how yeah. anybody could believe that. You know, it's like some of these scholars like Kant, they have ideas that are so deep. I would never think of them on my own. And then okay, they have their oversights so silly that yeah. I, I, I can't help but notice them immediately. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But think about, uh, do, maybe I'm wrong about this, but don't you think that in my, in Emmanuel Kant's time that they were having more intellectual conversation in general are, are the, like the yeah. average attention span. Yeah. There just American weren't TVs. Seconds. Yeah. And so maybe that because of his culture and the people that he was around and talking to and just the mm-hmm. general American culture, maybe even if back then they they all became enlightened, maybe for a while up until and up, up until social media, things would have been more scholarly, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why Marx thought that too. So Marx was writing in the 1840s, 50s and 60s. And I think that before television, where, where you had the written word. And then you had like actions people did in their lives. 
you mm-hmm. couldn't like watch videos or play video games or, or do these kind of like things that create shorter extension bands, make people non-literary and so on. Yeah. And so even people who weren't highly educated were still kind of literary in the sense that they used words and they thought in yeah. words and they talked in words and therefore they right. could engage with right. certain kinds of concepts. And yeah. I think that the utilization of video the way we do now, I think that it's diminishing our capacity. Even like, so I was thinking the other day, I, I feel like I, I have a lot of fluency and I'm always ready to podcast, but I'm having more trouble preaching. Weird. Because here I can explain what I mean. Yeah. Like, and, and we're not really crunched on time and I don't have to package it all perfectly. But yeah. now when I, when I preach and I have X number of minutes, I have to fit in that certain time. I like it, it's got, that's gotten harder for me. That organization, that thought organization has gotten harder for me. Dude. I, I mean, I think it's, I think I, I'm, I'm glad that you just said that. Cause I've seen that in you. <laughs> I, I've noticed that your, your sermon, like, I don't even know if somebody like you should even be trying to function within a sermon. I know that you're called to be a pastor, but I've always yeah, wondered. I like, find that difficult. There's, it's I had the, to write a 10 to 15 minute talk for the youth tonight on service. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible And thing. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I was like, okay, pick one thing to say. Pick one <laughs> yeah. sentence. Yeah, it was terrible. So yeah. it was so hard. But listen, I think that that is, gen- is, is the mark of genius though, to take very complicated things and instead of making them even more complicated to make them simpler. I think you know, Shapiro, it's, was it Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, I won't give two figs for simplicity on the near side of complexity, but I'll give my right arm for simplicity on the far side of complexity. Uh, actually, C.S. Lewis does a really good job at this. Mm-hmm. At, I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia again, and mm-hmm. there's just like a like these zingers, the, yeah. like one sentence zingers where you're. I'm like, whoa! I gotta like like d- figure out w- how that expands because he just pulled yeah. all of these things into a couple words. It's crazy. Yeah, his conception um, of hierarchy in uh, Preface to Paradise Lost that we talked about last time is a great example of that. I mean, it was, that yeah. chapter is like seven pages. <laughs> and he explains hierarchy, its function, why it works, and what goes wrong with it in like, I don't know, seven that's to 12 crazy. pages. Yeah. 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 It's great. That's, that's okay. insane. Okay. So, yes, a Christian can be enlightened when dealing with an equal. Yes, a Christian can be enlightened in honestly expressing oneself and becoming a self, right? And I would say yes, in the sense of not being codependent. So, Kant says there's this danger where this person in the position of a guardian keeps us in the position of a minor. They know what's right. We can just let them be right. We don't have to take responsibility for ourselves. We don't have to become functional intellectual adults, right? And he's like, that's bad. That, that, that is the result of laziness and cowardice and non-development. And I think he is correct about that for a yeah. lot of people to some extent. Mm-hmm. We, we, there's good, listen, we're all going to have guardians to a certain extent. Like there's going to be a general over the U.S. military that I'm not going to gainsay because I don't know enough about fighting wars. Right. Yeah. And he's going to be my quote guardian in the war fighting department. I'm going to have yeah. guardians, but it shouldn't be because I'm so immature. I can't think for myself. Right. Or, yeah. You couldn't figure it out if you had a certain amount of time. I mean, right. Yeah. Can I try? I'm going to try to connect this to people my age who are young Christians and see if this, this works. Cause I, when, when I hear you talk about this, it seems to me like the, um, egal- uh, not egalitarian, the Arminian argument against, weak Calvinism is the same argument that, Oh, how are you supposed to take responsibility? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like uh, um, the Armenian says that we have uh, free will um, so that we can take responsibility and not be held under this, like this, 
this provision, I guess that would be God's sovereignty and the, and the Calvinists. And that's generally what I hear is the argument against, against Calvinism. Now I'm not saying that it's, that that's even really what Calvinism says. I'm just saying that that's how I hear a lot of young people talk about these things. And so it feels like Kant is, if I'm going to put it into Christian terms, arguing on behalf of an Arminianist worldview, correct? I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, I think if Kant were to make the Christian jump, maybe he would be some form of Arminian because of his view of reason and human nature. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that like in this essay, Kant never breathes a whiff of actually saying that we need to rise above our nunnage under the guardianship of God. He, gotcha. in, in this, he's referring to tradition, other people, yeah, even government, and in mm-hmm. some cases, clergy or religious teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And he's saying that we shouldn't, out of a lack of development fail to step up and use our own minds. And then yeah. he also basically says that we shouldn't do it for a lack of virtue. Mm-hmm. That there's a certain kind of a virtue of not being a coward, not being lazy, daring to know, using our minds as well as we can and exerting ourselves mentally and intellectually. And that that's yeah. a virtue and we shouldn't be dumb because we don't do that. And I agree with them. I, I do too. I, I I did agree with the laziness and cowardice that are, are the reasons he says right here, laziness and cowardice are the reasons why such a large part of mankind gladly remain minors all their lives long after nature has freed them from external guidance. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's a good quote. I like that. Yeah. I think part of the issue here with Kant's essay, one of the reasons why everybody seems to like it is because it all depends on what you assume this essay applies to. Yeah. Right. Like, cause I read this as a Christian and I'm like, yep, I agree with it. Right. Because basically he, he said, he's basically saying in the things we shouldn't allow people to be our guardian, we shouldn't let them be our guardian. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with that. Everybody should agree with that. Right. Like, yes, I live in a post enlightenment age. Like Kant and his followers have already persuaded me. The question is, is Christian faith a guardian mm-hmm. that d- is not our superior to which we should be a minor mm-hmm. or what is our relationship to it? And in the essay, he does discuss the pastor and whether yeah. or not a pastor should only say what the church teaches or whether or not they can, they should be trying to rise up in their thinking and not live in the self imposed limitations of previous tradition and theology. That's funny. Cause that's exactly what I think is uh, the difference between high point church and the church that you pastor and Bethlehem Baptist Church, the church that we've been going to here in Minneapolis, both good churches. Bethlehem doesn't seem to have many people who are rising out, try, stepping outside of the theological ideology. And High Point, I think, sometimes has way too many people stepping outside of the, a theological yeah. ideology, which can, which both can cause can cause certain amount, amounts of damage. And I just think that's an yeah. interesting that he brought that up. Yeah. That's yeah. And I, th- I think that, so I don't know enough about Bethlehem Baptist to apply yeah. anything to that in particular, but like for, that would be a good example. Like if you had a church that's Calvinist, right. Yeah. And it's like John Calvin hung the moon. So whatever it says in the institutes of the Christian religion is as certain as what is in the new Testament. And right. that is what it is. And so you can't, you can't contradict. Right. You can't contradict. Um, 
Calvin, right? And this is kind of, in some ways, it's the difference between, I was listening to Rodney Stark's book, How the West Won, and he was talking about the difference between scholarship in the Islamic world and scholarship in the West. And he said, the difference was that in the West, in the universities, you were allowed to disagree with those who came before you. And in the Islamic world, you were not. If somebody was a scholar, all you could do was further work out what they had said in agreement to what they had said. And he he wasn't just talking about, about, um, about Muhammad. This was true of Aristotle and other great sages that in the Islamic world, they say, well, you can just, you can keep working out what Aristotle said, but you can't contradict Aristotle. It would allow for the scientific revolution. Aristotle. I don't know what the word is. Aristotle. What's the word to say? Aristotelian. Doesn't that Mm -hmm. seem like it's counter what he actually, Aristotle would have actually appreciated and desired out of his pupils? Yeah, in a way, I think that's true. Yes, I th- yeah, I don't think, I don't think that, um, that Aristotle would have wanted his work to be the truth for a thousand years. Yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I want to. So, so you said yes, um, uh, in honesty, expressing oneself and knowing oneself, and then. Did you want to go more into into that, or can we move into yes in the uh, in the next one, the next yes, the third yes? Yeah, no, those are my yeses. Those are my yeses. That when you're we're dealing with an equal or an inferior, when we honestly have to know and express ourselves as mature as persons, to escape codependent relationships of guardian and minor that we shouldn't be submitting to, and mm-hmm. when um, to not rise up would be a form of like vice. Right, that we're not we're not living in virtue. In all those cases, yeah, we have to be enlightened. We have to stand up yeah. and trust ourselves yeah. in the right way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the this leads this ultimately leads to the main question that I've that I have that I've had for years and have never received a good answer for. Okay, this is what enlightenment is, and, and that Emmanuel Kant is talking about now. Mm-hmm. In the good way, in the ways that you said yes about enlightenment, that Christians can be enlightened in these ways. How do Christians be enlightened in those ways? Because mm-hmm. those are two different questions. We can know what it is, but not know how to do it. And honestly, what's what frustrates me more than anything is I feel like I have more more understanding and knowledge uh, now than I had four years ago about. Um, these different philosophies and the way that people my age work and how they interact with each other and have relationships with each other. And yet I, and it's similar to um, Carl Truman's book, the rise and triumph where you, you finish the book and there's still no like solution. How do we get mm-hmm. people to get to the state of taking responsibility to having their own thoughts, to being an individual in the good ways? How do you do that? Is there, is there any ways to do that? Or is it just the, is it the basic truth of they need to find, have come to a revelation through the gospel and, through that, they'll become yeah. that, is, or is well, it a mix? I mean, in some ways, I think Truman and others agree with Kant's general premise that we need to publish or like put out the arguments for what we believe, yeah. and like we need to interact with them as people and see if we're persuaded by them. Yeah, you know what I mean. And, and mm-hmm. Kant, therefore, Kant believed in the freedom of speech, at least in scholarly publishing. You yeah. know, yeah. that every person should be able to publish to the public that which they truly think. For the purpose of the advancement of knowledge. Yeah. And I certainly agree with that. Yeah, I agree I, I with that. I think it has liabilities, but I think that yeah. overall it's best. 
I think it's. I think that's that. It only. I think that that would only work as long as the institutions are have integrity, because as long as like the academic institutions especially have integrity, that like people should be able to publish their um, ideas and things like that. But I mean, now you have people who are so comfortable publishing things that they're revising history and like changing things historically and mm-hmm. changing different periods of time, different thought processes. Now it's so difficult when I want to read a book about a certain time period and I go out to, I go out to Barnes and Noble. I have no idea which book to get because I don't know if somebody that I'm going to be reading, it's a professor from Harvard, but yeah. they could be telling me something that's not true. So there's, yeah. is there some sort of uh, accountability that's wrapped up in all of this too? Yeah. But th- I mean, that's, I mean, Kant would say, yeah, but then you're choosing a guardian, right? Yeah. And well, can Kant, anybody be that? Well, just go to Twitter, buddy. Like go, yeah. go, go on but Twitter. See, that's, I mean, that, that, problem is at least 2,000, 2,500 years old. Because I mean, this yeah. is what Plato was struggling with when he was writing The Republic. Like if, if we're, you're going to have a society that's truly good, how does it work? Like how could you have a society that's really good? And his, yeah. his belief was is that people like Kant or like this, you should have a philosopher, somebody who truly is utterly committed to the truth and wisdom. And then that person is the king. And so you have a philosopher king. And then under the philosopher king are these other like philosopher king type people, like super high in virtue, are committed to the truth and nothing but the truth. And they are the guardians of the society and they mm-hmm. educate the young and they form the society and philosophy. So basically Socrates wanted to rule society and make everybody like him is the, is the least positive way to talk about that book. He wanted to create a socialistic totalitarian state in which there were no parents or families in which he got to brainwash everybody. That's the most negative way to say it. The most positive way to say it was he wanted everybody to be a person of intellectual virtue so that the society could survive and therefore it had to be guarded by people of intellectual virtue. That's the best way you can say it. Depending on which way you say it makes it sound really good or really bad, right. you know? Yeah. Well, Nick, what, well then, well then, okay. So tell me, what do you think Jesus thought was a way to run a good society? It, 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 did, did Jesus, I'm trying to think back to the gospels and figure out, did Jesus talk much on this or is this all just about the local church? I mean, will, will his yeah. teachings all come back to the local, healthy local churches, functioning local churches? Yeah, I think Jesus thought the way to have a good society is to have people live a lifetime and demonstrate whether or not they would come to God by faith and pursue virtue and become the sort of people that you would want to have in an everlasting society that was good. And then you would judge them at the end of that life relative to your redemptive work for them. And then you would have this thing called heaven, which would be the perfect society. Yeah. What's that going to look like? Do you know? Do you have any ideas? Is there any hints in scripture? I think think it's going to work because every citizen will be good. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, yeah. and, and oh. the, and the guardian will be good. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you'll have a guardian who's actually the, the part of the problem, like F.A. Hayek had this problem with, with Kant, which was basically like nobody, there, nobody's qualified to be this guardian. Right. Mm-hmm. Like and Kant's basically saying like, we don't need guardians. We won't need guardians. Right. Mm-hmm. If we can publish it, we can all grow in enlightenment. We won't need guardians. Well, that's never been the case because the, there isn't a high enough percentage of the population that really can live completely free. And then yeah. once you get the explosion of scientific knowledge, see when Kant was alive, if you were a really smart person, right? Like if you had an IQ over 130 and you had really good executive function, like you were a disciplined reader, mm-hmm. you could kind of learn most of all the human knowledge that was available at that time. In the world, yeah. So you could literally be this like broadly educated person. 
And it wasn't until about midway through romanticism, like, you know, later in the century of the 1800s, where that was just like stupid impossible. Mm-hmm. And now it's like ab- absurd. It, yeah. And Kant not only didn't know how much he didn't know, he didn't just know that he, he didn't, he wouldn't know everything in the future. He had no concept of how much there was to know. If you can even like, th- like, like there's stuff about, for example, like the character and person of God. It's not just that we don't know it and that we, and, and that we, we hypothetically know we don't know it. Mm-hmm. It's that we literally have no idea the, ex- the expansiveness of everything we don't know and, and what it would even be about that we don't know. That that makes me think of Job when yeah. when God you know showed him everything that he, right and it was just too overwhelming for yeah, him. You have no idea what you don't know about. Yeah, to be talking like you could win a court case against me. Yeah, right? it's like you don't know what a court is. You don't know what a you have yeah. no idea what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. It's like when like little kids who are like two or three argue with you about basic (laughs) moral things and parenting and the structures of your discipline. You're kind of like, okay, listen, I can't even tell you what you don't know about to explain to you conceptually what you don't understand so that you could even know that you were wrong if you were willing to admit it. It, Not even two year olds. I felt like I've learned so much being, uh, I I think at 16, uh, people could have said that about me. I mean, every, yeah. everything that I had was paid for by my parents. Like I didn't right. have to do it. Like there was just, I had no yeah. understanding of, of right. anything. At, at like what, what you should be grateful for and how. Yeah. And yeah. how that would no. change your entire demeanor in every yep. decision. If you knew that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. So like, so, so Kant, like I remember when I was in a, I was in a graduate class at Trinity and um, Dr. Hebert read this statement from the University of Chicago in like the 1940s. So like not that long ago, you know, like not quite a hundred years ago. And it, it said something like, we have now discovered 95% of everything that will be known by human beings, of everything that can be known. How does somebody and make then, a statement? Like by the 1970s, they'd published another statement that said something like, we think we've discovered maybe 5% of what can be known. Like they like what, there was this huge explosion because once computing yeah. happened, there's mm-hmm. this enormous explosion of like realizing how much stuff you don't know and how much you can't know. See, what was once it about that, in, that once that that problem of information didn't exist in Kant's time, he didn't even know that problem existed. Okay, but now that's the problem. The problem of information is like in some ways the problem because that's why we need AI because we're like, well, there no human mind can take in all this information. And you're like, well, we have to do it somehow because we have to run countries. And so we come up with these huge bureaucracies with all these professionals thinking that if we put 700 of them together, they can come up with the right answer. But then they don't come up with the right answer for like building a levy around New Orleans so Katrina doesn't destroy the state or so that we can not go into a war that we know will be a complete failure or so that we know how to medicate a flu-like disease that comes over from China and so on. Like in all these like very, or like, or like keep crime to a minimum or create a school where kids can learn or like all these things our bureaucracies have actually failed at. And so now you've got these younger generations that are like, they believe in the bureaucracies, but they don't believe in the bureaucracies at the same time. All of this comes down to the the problem of information. Okay, so so wait, so it was it was a it was the sheer like computing power uh, that in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s that all of this that all of that it went from we know 95 percent of all things that can be known to five percent because of the computers and the way that they were able to process things and, yeah. and the information that they were able to yeah, store. And just ex- 
Yeah, I don't want to say that computers are like the only thing that created the massive expansion of human knowledge. That's not true. Essentially, like science began to unlock things and it, it would unlock something and it would open like a whole new realm of knowledge. Right. And so what was that realm? So we split the atom and it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, like there's right. a whole lot to know here, you know, that comes so, so so where does this end? Because what what in on the timeline of, of humanity, does God come back? Does Jesus come back when like when we've cre- when we've gotten when we've basically built up so much inform- information storage and don't know, and we've reached a point where we're like in utter and absolute chaos and confusion as how on how to actually organize it? Or do you think that we're already there? Because I don't, I feel like yeah. we're already there. Oh, know? yeah, we are definitely. Yeah. But I mean, this is why people have a lot of hope for AI. Like they, they hope that artificial intelligence will be able, will be able to create programs that will go out into the realm of knowledge and like sort the knowledge but so bro, that Emmanuel we can know Kyle, the most important thing. Wouldn't he hate AI? Cause I feel like AI is, I know it's, it's, it's not it's, if we it's, used it's, it to grow intelligent ourselves. Yeah. That's not going to happen. I mean, right. w- it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like Google, like you can use Google to not remember anything yes. or you can use Google or like a search engine research. like that to go to find out as much as you can about the world, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I, I just don't believe that people are going to use AI in a way that's going to help them. The, the whole argument, Andrew and I had watched some of the metaverse stuff from uh, Mark Zuckerberg and just the purpose of the metaverse. And, you know, you don't have to go and like, you know, you can take a field trip to Africa with, with all the kids. And that just all of that does not seem like people are going to be apt, actually understanding these things. And and learning more and becoming more enlightened, as as Kant would say, I think what's going to happen probably is that we're going to have all of this stored information, and then we're going to try to turn AI. AI is going to be like a place where there's going to be all the information, and it's going to be sorting things out and being organized, and then we're going to ha- ask it to make our decisions. Right? Don't you think that that's going to be the next question? Hey, I think can that's, you make these hard decisions for us? And then we're going to have a, a government run by artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, th- I think that's possible. I mean, if Robert Marx is right in that you can't create sentience by computing, then we still will be programming all the assumptions into oh. an AI program, which means that it's still... Sentience? I mean, Marx doesn't think, think it's possible. He's a computer scientist from Texas. Um, but there are some people that absolutely believe it's possible. But I think that comes from a presumption that that's all the human brain is. Like, if you believe that the human brain is just a, a advanced um, carbon-based computer, then in theory, you should be able to make a, a similarly complex silicon computer that can do even more than the human brain. But even because if it, all our say- brain had, all our brain could do was evolve on the basis of yeah. evolutionary principle. Now you've got m- many hundreds of human minds who are designing the silicone mind. It should be able to be much greater than our mind. Is their view? If the okay, human let- mind is more than the human brain, in ways that are mystical and difficult to figure out, then it AI may never be able to be so, created so, without so- our ability to create a soul. Yeah. It, okay. Is. Let's say it doesn't become sentient and has no soul, but it has all. It has like uh, like thirty percent of all information that could ever be understood, um, compared to you and I have like one percent or something yeah. or point five or I don't know how much True. we have. Yeah, we don't it would have be able much. to and access it, more it knowledge at one time than us. 
and then it can and then it can basically create algorithms and ways in which it can uh, it can give us a per, maybe a percentage. If, it, if we're asking the question, okay, how much money should we spend on X or how much money should we spend on Z? And mm-hmm. this thing computes all of the thirty percent of known information in the entire world, and it says uh, you're going to get a better return on X, Y, and Z if you give more money to X compared to Z. And it has mm-hmm. all these statistics and information. It's like that's basically like it's making the decision for us. It's not sentient. It doesn't have an opinion per se. Yeah. But if making the decision for us means that we can make more evidence-based decisions and in, in relationship to questions, which evidence is the main thing we need to make the decision that AI might be able to dramatically help us. Right. But, but it would, but it would create, it absolutely would create these people that Emmanuel Kant is talking about that is relying on this, I don't mm-hmm. want to say that this thing has an authority or whatever, what, this AI has an authority, but in some ways, it would be like what Google is to us today. It's not like we've gotten a bunch smarter and understand a bunch more yeah. stuff. Uh, the, the average individual, uh, a lot of people are really smart. But um, yeah, I mean, if the, if the research of Robert, Dr. Robert Epstein on Google is correct, then that's already happening with Google. And it would just, I would think, get worse with AI. I mean, if, if Google can move votes of undecided voters yeah, it's between 50 and 70% efficiently, then like, why wouldn't AI be much more successful mm-hmm. in moving around people by just nudging them? I mean, that was the idea of who is the guy from the East coast who wrote that book at Harvard. It was called, I think it was called, it was called nudge. And it was like the idea that like Cass Sunstein, I think his name was, and it was the idea that like, there's all kinds of ways technologically and socially that we can just give people little incentives to do what we think is the right thing as the government and they'll do it. Are we just you have to give them just a little bit of an incentive, just a nudge. And then they'll behave the way we want them to. Cass R. Sunstein. Sunstein. And, oh no. Sunstein and Richard Th- Thaler. Probably is the book nudge. Okay. It has like a little elephant on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think the assumption in that book is, is and, and like some people have said, yeah, this is a guy who's trying to make socialism happen, right? Like the government is going to like come up with all these things that just nudge us all and right. And until all of our behaviors is just what they want it for us. Yeah. And maybe that's true, but that's not how he talks about it publicly, right? He's just saying there, there are ways in which we could change incentives from being bad incentives to being good incentives. And then people might behave better and that might be good. You know? Yeah, and, and I don't believe that there's a master plan behind all this. Like that, people think that all oh, this is all like yeah. there's a master plan that every that there's a group of people that want it to go to communism. I just think that people mm-hmm. are are uh, genuinely intrigued by artificial intelligence and and technology, and they get into those fields and they make a bunch of really great advancements in those fields. But ultimately, if you're just if you're looking at these things with a microscope, you're like, yeah, I'm making these great advancements. But if you zoom out. I think sometimes you, I think what we'll probably see is it leads towards that sort of socialist communist yeah. society. Well, well, this is, this is my critique of Kant, which should be that he doesn't understand what the human person actually is. But yeah. I, I mean, I need to stipulate that I got a 200 and like 19 year head start on him. Like I, I, like I have a huge advantage. I mean, if he was sitting here, he'd probably critique the a circle around me. Right. But so yeah. there's a couple of things I said, I think that a Christian, no, they can't be enlightened in this sense. Mm-hmm. One is, is in relationship to a natural or circumstantial superior. Sure. Like if, I mean, you can, you can still trust yourself and you can be skeptical of a superior, but if somebody is your natural or circumstantial superior in something saying, well, I'm my own person may not be a virtue. 
Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Secondly, that in relationship to that, which is subject to depravity, the flesh or natural, the natural unreliability of rationality. Kant seemed to believe that rationality was very reliable. And Christianity questions that. Yeah. That we do have a rationality. We can know the truth. And if, especially if we seek the truth truly for, in a moral sense, we yeah. can be quite objective. But yeah. – we also are truth suppressors. We often don't want to know the truth and we're often very self-seeking. And a lot of atheists who just look at like the study of how the human brain operates, the human brain is just not naturally always interested in the truth. Yeah. And people don't behave in that way. Um, this is Objectivity oh, is a discipline developed over a long period of time and in some ways is a virtue. Disinterestedness, to see things as they are rather than the way you want to see them is yeah. an extremely difficult area of human development. And right. Kant, and it, as a scholar, gave a lot of effort to it and was capable of achieving it. Very few people do. Well, and and, and there's and there's the dangers of objectivism from the, like the Ayn Rand dangers of that. It turns things. Uh, I think the pull for me the well. Here's what I was going to say first, and I'll talk about that. It's funny that that this is uh, the the ra rational that Christianity that you're saying. It's not funny, but it's interesting that you're saying that Christianity pushes a little bit back against this rationalizing the or reason. Is that what it was? It was it was peaceful, people's ability to reason, right? Uh, to reason objectively. A reason objectively, it, it, mm -hmm. and I'm I, obviously reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, and and then Andrea and I watched the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which was a terrible movie, and the, so terrible it was horrible. But what, one of the one of the common themes throughout Nar Narnia that I that I think C.S. Lewis is making that I obviously didn't realize this as a kid when when I read through it with my dad, but he like he hates sophistication, like like the sophisticated logical. Eustace is this logical, sophisticated kid yeah. who logically thinks through everything, and yet he's he, he's thinking through things logically, and yet he's getting things so wrong. He's and totally petty and immature. He yeah. treats people like crap, and I think that that's the same way of how Ayn Rand's characters in uh, in um, Atlas Shrugged. While they're incredibly objective and logical and reasonable, sometimes. They treat each other like crap, and there's like a huge disconnect between, um, between how they think and how they act. Even if you can see something objectively, I think that that can sometimes create a, a, a mindset that makes you believe that people are to, to be objectified, and I think that that's mm -hmm. not good. I, yeah. I don't. I, I've saw. I've seen those connections in reading both the Nar Narnia and both, uh, and then um, Ayn Rand's book yeah. Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, one of my one of my daughters is watching the TV show Bones on Prime okay. now, and the the way that the way that's set up character wise is the woman is like incredibly the female character is like incredibly emotionally stunted for some reason, and everything is just like sheerly logical, and the bones tell the truth, and like like, and then the guy is like this passionate like army veteran dude sort of thing right and yeah. she gets a, t a bunch of things wrong and can't see a lot of things because she just can't think them she can't think through in terms of human perception she can only think through in terms of evidence-based rationality and it yeah. just cuts her off from all these areas of reality that she can't understand and part mm. of the drama of the show is as you work through the seasons as in this relationship with this like feeling perceiving male character yeah. That begins to be rehabilitated in her and she begins to see things and operate in ways she couldn't operate before. And yeah. it's, in some ways, Christian faith is supposed to do that for us. It, by mm -hmm. telling us we don't want to know the truth, it helps us to see the truth.
And the, the goal of Christianity is not to say, well, we're so depraved, we could never know the truth. It's to say, we're so depraved, we keep lying to ourselves. In the with the grace of Christ, we're going to commit ourselves more and more to the truth and seek to actually be more and more objective. Yeah. And in that sense, more disinterested as we become more humble. Does this so, can, connect in any way with the the, the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, and, I mean, I mean, if we wanted to Jungianly um, Jordan Petersonize it enough, we probably could connect it with the knowledge of good and evil. But I, I, I'm not trying to do that. I, I just <laughs> I was thinking about how um, you talked. You just said that that in understanding that we uh, are so depraved, we can then actually understand the ob- objective we can actually see things truth truly how god meant them to be seen in certain in certain ways i just there's some yeah. there was some sort of way that, that eve was she thought that the knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was going to give her that viewpoint on life the true knowledge of good and evil but it ended up not doing that which i i thought there would be some sort of connection I don't know if there is. Yeah, I know. I'm sure you could. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, when we when Eve took that knowledge, so to speak, and and then Adam did as well. Yeah, they they got a certain kind of knowledge, right? But it wasn't. It wasn't so. Like, there's there is the acquisition of knowledge, and then there is the ordering of knowledge. Both hmm. the scientific ordering, where does it go taxonomically? But there's also the the virtue or moral modeling of knowledge. Like, wow. where does it go morally? When yeah. they ate the fruit, it appears as though they got access to a certain kind of broadness of knowledge. Right. But it, they didn't learn it in the right order and it didn't go in the right place. So it'd be better if you had not learned anything than if you learned something out of order? Yeah. Wow. In a I way. Yeah, yeah. Because look, Augustine believed that God didn't want to keep Adam and Eve in eternal innocence. He <laughs> was going to teach them all those things. He was just going to teach them all in the right order. And mm. so in so doing, the humans would have, quote, perfect knowledge. That is knowledge that is in right proportion, in right relationship with itself. Yeah. Knowledge acquired the wrong way, stolen, so to speak, without faith, mm-hmm. produces the knowledge of good and evil that comes from the apple, which ends up leading us into depravity, essentially. It ruins us. It's a knowledge that ruins us rather than one that makes us like God. So is Jordan Peterson an enlightenment uh, in in a certain way, is Jordan Peterson like Immanuel Kant? Do they believe similar things? They believe a lot of similar things, but we all are children of the Enlightenment. I mean, there are ways in which we all are like this in ways we don't even understand. Like a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, like you couldn't have talked about this in 1620. What would happen? Like you'd get killed or like ostracized or like you wouldn't be allowed to speak because you're too dumb and not didn't have enough education and stuff like you like we like this kind of dynamic this democratization of knowledge and talking and all this kind of stuff like th- this was this was produced by the partly by the enlightenment now the enlightenment was produced partly by the age of reason and of science which was produced by christianity i mean like listen it's not like all of a sudden the atheists showed up in the 1700s that we were all better now yeah but like a, this all grew out of the womb of christianity right right but there's a way in which we're all Kantians now just in a similar way that like even Richard Dawkins is -hmm. a Christian in a way he can't even understand because all of his rebelling is against Christian stuff and he's like has all these like assumed Christian moral ideas about what's good and bad that's all from Christianity and Judaism and that he just thinks it's like just in the air that he got it from reason and of course he didn't because there's all kinds of people in the world who had reason for thousands of years and never thought any of these things before Jesus 
Okay, but th- this is all like th- this is what gets so confusing to me and overwhelming and makes me my brain want to I- explode. Um, what the he- like? What am I supposed to? If there's no, if none of these systems are perfect, which I know that they're not going to be perfect. Okay, the Enlightenment has its its holes. Like, how are we supposed to deal with civilization? How how are are human beings supposed to work? together in relationship with each other together towards a common good or goal when there's 350 million of us uh there was a quote that i heard the other day it it was uh winston churchill said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried and i think that that like this is always overwhelming because i don't see any governmental structure given to us by Christ or in the new Testament that like for somebody like me, who's interested in government and politics and things like that and how the general populace works together and how we think about things, how the F am I, what am I supposed to be promoting? Am I supposed to be a conservative or is supposed to be a libertarian? I don't think I'm supposed to be a progressive, but am I supposed to be a progressive, you know, I, like or a liberal. Yeah. Or a liberal. I, I think that, yeah. So Jesus doesn't institute any particular government methodology in the new Testament. And I think that's because Christians were going to live in all of them, right? Christians have lived in every form of government over the last 2000 years that we've imagined yet. And we'll live in all the others that we haven't yet imagined, perhaps like the anarcho bureaucratic, whatever kind of the state government that comes after. I don't know what comes after what we have now. Yeah. And so he wanted to create a way of following him that in which we could do it in any system of government. Right. And I think he succeeded at that. But in so doing, he didn't tell us what kind of governments a mature society should have before his return. That's annoying. Well, but I think justice could be achieved by good people through many forms of government. Like Don Carson said one time about government, he said, you tell me the system and I'll tell you how to corrupt it. Like there is no system that without good men and women. Mm-hmm. who choose to vigilantly make it not corrupt. It won't corrupt. Yeah. Right. Every, every system can, like the founding fathers tried to come up with a way to put together a system that would be the least susceptible to corruption. Yeah. But John Adams still said, yeah, it's not like perfect. this can't exist without a virtuous public. Yeah. Right. It just can't, there is no government that can thrive or society that can thrive without a pro pro with a a preponderance of virtue in the public, which is why Adams believed religion was fundamentally necessary to the formation of the country. Even Mm -hmm. like the less religious founding fathers believed that too. Jefferson and in Washington both believed that even though, you know, Washington, I think never gave a dime to his church and didn't attend it very often and wasn't very doctrinally clear on a bunch of things. He still believed that religion, the idea that you could have a good society without religion was silly. Yeah. And he was post Kant by a good bit. Yeah. Now does Kant what does Kant think about that? Because he is critical in this in this article or in this what is yeah. it you call it uh, not an article, but a yeah. is the yeah, this essay that uh he is critical of the pastors and it, it does seem like uh, Emmanuel Kant would think that uh, the, uh, the best type of civilization in society would be one that isn't that isn't uh held back by uh, God or, or right. That, that's what it feels like. He, he would probably yeah. argue back then. Yeah. So I think it's important to recognize that Kant is probably trying to make an argument that will be listened to by the government. 
So he's going to, he talks about pastors, but it's because after pastors, he wants to compare pastors to bureaucrats and government officials. Hmm. Right. So his argument with pastors, I think is his work about his pastors is his worst argument in the essay, in my, my opinion, because basically what he says is this, if everybody has the freedom to publish what they believe is true, Hmm. they can do what they're supposed to do in their private life and still publicly publish what they believe. And so our knowledge can advance that we can grow in enlightenment without having chaos. His whole argument is can't, could, could the prince or could Frederick the great agree with Kant, with Kant on this? Could the government agree to it? Well, the government person will say, well, listen, Kant, if anybody can believe whatever they want and nobody's a guardian over somebody else, if nobody oversees anybody, then you're going to have nothing but chaos. And Kant says, no, if people do what they were entrusted to do, but are allowed to publish openly so that people can read and think, we will always have a society of growing enlightenment. And people will do their jobs. And the example he gives for pastors is he says, listen, so if you have a pastor, right, the church or denomination has given him a job as a pastor or shepherd, and he should do that in his parish. When he speaks as a pastor in church, he should speak in accordance with his denomination, with with what his denomination or Christian sect teaches. But he should also be able to write and publish advancements in that thinking as he tries to work them out so that religion can develop like anything else. Otherwise, religion will be stuck in its previous form forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's not good for religion, right? Am I thinking of this? Oh, go ahead. And religion is one of the worst places for things to get stuck. stuck. And we need to keep reconceptualizing our religious faith as the world changes Mm -hmm. so that our religion stays vibrant. It would be his argument, right? And I I partly agree with him. Yeah, some of that seems pretty But I think there are some significant problems with it as well. Yeah. Do you think, do you feel like this is egalitarian? It, it, some of it's egalitarian. I do agree with the last portion of what you said that like, we got to keep, keep uh, kind of, well, I don't know how you said it, but like basically rejuvenizing the Christian faith and our theology mm-hmm. and being, being alive and not just become right. stale and broken and dead over, over a long period. Right. And, and to do that, you need to allow people to write creatively yes, and to right. write, with analysis and right? to push back against uh, right. the the, po- the people at power in the right. church, right? Like, and that's kind of the heart of Protestantism, right? Like, why aren't we Roman Catholic? And it's because if because you just agree with the magisterium, if the magisterium is just always right and always been right, you right. you can't have a you can't have a renaissance in Christian mm-hmm. faith. You can't have a reformation, even yeah. if it's needed, right? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still a Protestant today is because although I'm drawn to the sort of Catholic or Orthodox, like. We have we've thought this stuff through for two thousand years. I'm like, yeah, but you can't correct yourself, and so now I don't believe the whole lot of it, because because you don't have a good reforming internal principle. I don't believe with the big body. I don't believe the big body of knowledge that you've come up with, and some of it I think is patently absurd, frankly. You know? Yeah, dude. Yeah, there's a guy named Greg Allison who wrote a really good book about um, Catholicism, and he put the, the the catechism right next to evangelical theology, and it like shattered my brain how different the what we believe compared to what they believe. It's it's very interesting in certain uh, things, at least. Yeah, yeah, and I think in fundamental things. After I read that, I had a, I, I could probably have him on the podcast, and we could probably talk about it. I think. Yeah, I would be. I'd be interested in talking to him. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think one of the areas. So there's. I think there's two major problems with what Kant is saying, as it implies itself on religion. The first is that there are some things you can't re-reason through because they weren't the product of reason in the first place. So for example, either John the apostle saw the the Jesus, the Christ risen, or he did not. Now that's not something that, uh, uh, that I, as a pastor now can republish on my, my newly enlightened thoughts, right? Like I can't go back and re-experience that 
Mm-hmm. Right. So either we believe John's testimony or we don't. Now we can criticize John's testimony. We can test it historically. There's a bunch of stuff we can do. But like I think a lot of it, quote, enlightenment people think that we should just realize people don't rise from the dead and get over it. That's not intellectual. We have a body of evidence of people who say they saw Jesus risen from the dead and a body of evidence of people telling us what Jesus said. We cannot rehear Jesus talking. And we can't re-experience him risen from the dead. To that extent, if Christianity is true, we are in some ways bound to that which we have already received. Right? And so we have what the Apostle Paul called the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Meaning we can't really change it. It is what it is and it will be that forever. Now, does that mean we can't change how we think about Jesus setting us right with God and what justification literally means when compared to certain psychological principles discovered in the last 30 years. No, I think we can do that, but we can't change the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, which is why I don't think this article, if we apply it correctly, would make us progressive Christians. But I do think uh, it would make us evangelical Christians if we had been fundamentalists. Yes. It also could make an evangelical Christian an egalitarian Arminianist, which is is that within the realms of evangelicalism? I can't even. Arminianism and egalitarianism are not the same thing. However, they do tend no, no, to cluster. No. Both of I'm saying like if somebody's a complementarian uh, Calvinist evangel like part of the evangelistic. I don't know. I don't know all the right terminology around this part of the evangelical theology, theological framework of thinking. uh, I think reading this could potentially convince somebody towards Arminianism and egalitarianism. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just, part of the issue for me is like Kant. I think he thinks things that I think his underlying assumption, which I think uh, you already mentioned this, but it's it's just this is what struck me while reading the whole thing, is that his viewpoint on human beings and how we think and how we take in information and how we put information out is so generalized and so one size fits all. There, there's not a bunch of diversity within that, and I think that that creates for really a really frail view of human uh, decision-making and like being free, I guess you have the next question. What is it? What does free mean to Kant, but being free as a free thinker and things like that. I don't, I just don't think he's, I think that he thinks that everybody can become enlightened in the, does this make sense? What I'm saying? I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm trying to. Yeah. I mean, so yes, there's one of the problems with Kant's argument is if everybody gets to publish, will the general public rise in enlightenment? And the answer is yes and no. Like, That's, yes, yeah. does the average woman in a Western society know more than she did in Kant's day relative to the amount of information that could be known? And is she more independent, more adult in that sense, less submissive to guardians? And the answer is yes. And that's probably a good thing, right? But it that's also thing. true of, of Christians in the first century. Compared to the Christians that uh, from Christian women in the first century, compared to Jew- Jewish women in the centuries that came before Christ, I think that's partially true. I mean, I mean women Jesus, were, yeah, women were included in things in Christianity in ways that Jewish women and pagan women were not. 
Yeah, I think that that's a big point. I mean, I don't. I think that that's. I don't think the enlightenment. I think that the techno. I think that technology allowed women to have the the women and men of today to have those understandings, not in the enlightenment. And maybe the enlightenment created the techno. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, if you live in bone grinding poverty and you spend ninety percent of your time either sleeping or trying to eke out a living from the soil, then by definition, technology makes learning possible right mm-hmm. so it increases nourishment and height and strength and all yeah. the, and later makes it possible to create universities and so on ultimately to where we are today so mm-hmm. it's true that technology has made a lot of intellectualization possible for human beings yeah that's, yeah that's true and the lack of it holds people back even today but but i i think that i think kant was wrong to think that the vast majority of society would be like him and rise up and no longer need guardians. I think yeah. he underestimated the explosion of future knowledge that would make it so in some places we could be like him and know our own mind and dare to know. But in other places, we just can't know enough about everything to be in the driver's seat for everything. And then there are some things we're not going to be able to advance our knowledge on in the most basic sense, things that weren't rationalized to begin with, things that were experienced or seen or perceived like, did Jesus rise from the dead? What did Jesus actually say? Yeah. And then from that, in that sense, Christians have always been doing what Kant says. I mean, Christians for 2,000 years years have been refining, arguing about, and seeking to progress in our knowledge theologically through reason and experience, right? Um, But also utilizing tradition, right? It's like it's scripture. I mean, the, the, the old Wesleyan quadrilateral was scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. The, the interplay of those four things mm-hmm. lead us forward theologically. Yeah. And I think that that's a good way to think about it. And so um, whether or not we should be like Kant says and just like liberate ourselves has a lot to do with the, with the question of whether or not we should, mm-hmm. whether or not we are being um, servile mm-hmm. to listen to those whose authority we listen to. Right. And that's a question everybody has to ask for themselves. What Kant yeah. believed was that a lot of people were by default just simply being servile intellectually and he wanted people to rise up from that and i think we can all wholeheartedly agree that that was a a lot of ways a good thing the question is how far does this go does it have a limiting principle are there some people we should listen to and so on yeah 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 i think the the problem for pastors in his essay is i think pastors are different from bureaucrats like if you so let's take let's take gay marriage for for instance right let's say you're a bureaucrat in missouri and you are not for gay marriage right but your job, the, the, the trust you have for your job is that you have to issue gay marriage licenses. What Kant says is you publish the gay marriage licenses and then you write and publish that gay marriage should not be endorsed by civil law. And you can do both of those things. You can fulfill your job as a public magistrate and you can write the beliefs that you think should be out there. And if the society becomes, quote, enlightened the way you think they should be, then maybe your job will change and you won't be issuing those licenses or mm-hmm. vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why I think this argument doesn't work for pastors and I think may not work for professors is because the trust that pastors are given is to teach the doctrine of the church publicly. And the very thing they're doing is the content they're supposed to teach. If they turn around and publicly publish something else, and the quote public that's reading it is includes their parish, then what? 
Well, hold on. I think that the responsibility of the pastor is more so to shepherd the flock in ways that more it, it requires teach to understand the, the biblical doctrines. But I think in, in even maybe more so or or not more so just in connected to that, it requires them to have really good discernment, which I think that relates to Kant it Kant's, uh his his uh w- when he talks about pastors being these mm-hmm. these leaders like like there there's certain things when you do a counseling session with somebody uh where you don't have a biblical doctrinal answer for the question but you have to use discernment which means that you have to be enlightened to a certain degree correct yeah sure so i think that it, it applies in that way in the in the pastoring shepherding way yeah, I agree. I think for Kant, though, he would say, yeah, yeah. my concern is, is that there are certain areas where if a pastor was rewriting certain Christian doctrines, they would be simultaneously undermining the very trust of their pastorate. Because part of what pastors do is they teach Christian doctrine. Yeah, yeah. If you're teaching one doctrine in the church and then you're being enlightened and you're publishing a contradiction of that teaching – yeah. publicly. Yeah. Then I don't think that works because part of being a pastor is to profess doctrinally. Yeah. Right? And so so for example, yeah. if I'm writing an essay on supply side economics and does mm-hmm. that fit with old old testament ideas of loving the poor and being productive. Yeah. And then I go to my church and I preach about Jesus dying for our sins and rising for our justification that you can be saved. There's no conflict there. Right? right. But if I teach in my church, Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification, and by believing him, you could be saved. And then I go write a book about how that's nothing but a psychological metaphor and that there was no Jesus and he certainly didn't rise from the dead. That's a problem. That's different, right? Yeah. And if I say, well, I'm being enlightenment, I, that I'm, I'm emerging from the like imposition of the tradition of the church, and I'm thinking through the fact that what's the likelihood somebody rose from the dead, really? And isn't this mythological literature? And shouldn't I interpret it psychologically, mythologically, since the people who create, create the mythology are psychological beings, a la now I'm Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah. And like, isn't this fantastic? And the answer is, well, you might be making true parallels that right. are psychologically correct, but that's not what that text means. And you, if, in doing that, you are actually claiming to have enlightenment on something you actually can't know anything about, which is whether Jesus rose from the dead. And it you can disbelieve my- John, but to rewrite what John said in the name of quote enlightenment is to think that you can you can rewrite somebody's historical legal testimony as though it was just philosophy. I think it, I don't think you can. Right. I think it blows my mind though, that it happens to Jordan Peterson, who I think uh, from, from everything that I've seen about him, he has a deep respect for tradition and history as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and does. yet when it comes to the Bible, it's, it's all, and I know that I saw in an interview, uh, somebody actually did ask him about Jesus Christ. Hey, is this a metaphor or is this real? And he was like, he couldn't, yet say he didn't he couldn't say that it was a metaphor he's like i don't know i think basically his answer is like i don't really know how to even deal with that question right now like there's it it was too overwhelming for him it seemed and yeah i don't think peterson rules out that there is an analysis even deeper than his analysis which includes the statements being in fact true right i'm just just wondering if he's gonna get yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. I wonder that too. I think everybody wonders that. I hope I so. Want him I want to there, man. It's yeah. just, it's just like, I think it's important to tell people, especially young people and, and like myself, it's, to, it's easy to get trapped in, uh, uh, kind of lured into yeah. that trap because I think that that Sometimes can be Sometimes though, a, I think his analysis causes him to miss the points of passages. Totally. Well. But totally, I do yeah. think his connection with like Daily Wire is going to get him in the circle of some more conservative Christian scholars. Yeah. And I think that there's going to be those sorts of people speaking into his life, which I think will be really helpful. Ben Shapiro, not a conservative Christian scholar, but mm-hmm. he believes that the stories of the Bible are truly, they true, they happen in the Old Testament, at least. Yeah. And I think that they're doing Exodus right now together. Them two are, are going to go through Exodus. And I'm excited yeah, to hear that. that's really interesting. Yeah, because I think adding Shapiro in there as a as a more objective voice of, of reason saying, Hey, this is, this actually, I actually believe, believe this happened in real life. I think that'll be interesting. So yeah, yeah it, it can be interesting listening to him. So, so here we have uh number three, you have tension. What if you trust the public and is rooted in teaching? So do we, we what if your trust this? is public, but like it's rooted in teaching. That's what I said about yeah. pastors. So like yeah, right. if you're a pastor, so it's one thing if you're like a bureaucrat and your public trust is to like, publish something or like give yeah. somebody a license or whatever you can do the thing you're you were hired to do and then say the thing i'm doing i don't think is best so like yeah. you could be a parole officer right now and you could like like oversee people and you could revoke their paroles and then you could write a book on prison reform where you say the things you're doing aren't the best thing mm. i think you could still be a parole officer and do that i think it's mm. there's some issues with it but i think it's doable I think when it's your job to teach things and then you then teach in another thing that the thing you teach in one situation is false, I think there's a problem there. And I think that that's true for professors. I think Kant's belief that you could have sheer academic freedom is difficulty if a professor is a person who professes. That is, if you hold a chair of professorship, you're supposed to profess certain things. Yeah. And if you don't profess those things, maybe you shouldn't be there. Yeah. So if if what you teach is say A through F, yeah. and then what you write about is H through Z, right? Right? Then there isn't any conflict, right? right? You're teaching and professing the basics. What you're researching and writing about are the specifics, and there's no conflict. But when you're supposed to profess I don't know, you're teaching American history and you're supposed to profess that certain things happen positively and then you do nothing but deconstruct them and you're writing and tear them down, then I think there can be a problem there. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for Kant, that problem exists in ways he doesn't want it to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I Okay. So I guess this last question you have here is, is development and therefore enlightenment in a society? I, I assume you meant to say is, not it. On number four. Yeah. Is development and therefore enlightenment in, in a society natural? That is like, if we did what Kant said, yeah. would our whole society become enlightened? Would and that's where I think, about? yeah. And I think Kant's just totally wrong about that for reasons yeah. he couldn't yet see. Yeah. I think yeah. his view of the human person is wrong. He's, he thinks that we're, he's in this sense, he's like a progressive. He mm-hmm. thinks we're just not yet developed enough intellectually. And yeah. if we just get a little bit more resources and if we can be just developed a little bit more and our minds get developed more, then we will be enlightened people. And I just think he, I think time has proved him wrong. Yeah. Now it may be that he would say that bad guardians have gotten control of the systems by which people are being affected and shaped and they are being shaped by the guardians so that they're not able 
to be people of enlightenment that like the guardians have made systems that make people stupider and they've been so successful that now the general public isn't capable of growing into enlightenment yeah and that undermining of human development needs to be gone after there needs to be reform that's a form of corruption right. now if he made that argument i might be closer to on his side but i right. still think the reason we're so susceptible to those kinds of negative incentives is because we are depraved we do have we are selfish self-centered and also don't want to know the truth in certain situations and until we face redemption i think we are going to find ourselves caught in that trap pretty regularly so let me so obviously you've kind of given this answer but uh, p- practically and uh, for people who are listening to this and they're thinking to themselves maybe maybe i'm that type of person who is um who who hasn't emerged from his self-imposed uh nonage or not it i can't i can still can't nonage yeah nonage, yeah he hasn't. He, I haven't emerged from my self-imposed nunage, and I can see how I'm being affected by my inability to think for myself, and I can see how I can only do what everybody else around me does. What are some practical steps towards being being an enlightened thinker in all the good, right, Christian ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for your sins and rose for your justification so that you could be born again in his name and made a new creation and therefore filled with the Spirit and guided by him, growing in the mind of Christ, learning how to love, growing in virtuous freedom and becoming part of the formational community of the church. I mean, that would be my short answer. Um, But I think that, I think this idea that like putting like this, like this is kind of like the the pseudo-Christian Jordan Peter Anderson is like, reject laziness find your courage yeah like define yourself mm-hmm. start by like not saying anything you believe is false like all those kind of like secularized enlightenment mechanisms for like rising as a person are all true yeah they're all true but for it really for the the knowledge of good and evil to really get ordered the way it needs to be for us to have a full capacity to be all that we can be jesus the christ needs to be at the heart of it and at the top of it. Yeah. And so that we can grow in the mind of Christ, that all knowledge can be ordered properly in him. And so we can find our humility so that we can find our greatness and our glory. And that, yeah. that really, I think that can really only happen when we see true humanity as expressed in Jesus Christ. Or at least I would say this, it happens most reliably. Mm-hmm. And I, th- and I do think ultimately it's necessary. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I think, uh, I mean, we can, we can wrap things up. I, this is an interesting, I I just find this all to be very, very, um, interesting as I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and I, I found in the past probably six months that I've without even knowing it have become in a lot of ways, uh, I, I felt like I was becoming more and more, sophisticated in all the ways that C.S. Lewis doesn't like. And Mm -hmm. um, reading the book has kind of been like a reality check in certain ways or or just a convictional type thing. And I think, I think you're right. Like about, about the, even these types of, these types of uh, writings that are really great. There's a lot of really great things to them. Um, And same with, with Ayn Rand and, and other writers who are more on the, 
believe in this enlightenment objectivism type thing mm-hmm. that if you don't have the the part if if you don't if you can't if you can't complement that with the I, what's the right word to use for like like there's the truth of Jesus Christ but there's also like all of the spiritual pieces of Christianity that you can't objectively even understand but that they exist there's almost like a fantasy side of christianity or or mythological side of christianity the mysticism mysticism. if you don't complement those two things together you just become really really stale on on either side of of you become an old an old conservative who watches fox or an old liberal who watches (laughs) like cnn but they're both One way to think about that, just humanly, physically speaking, is there's a whole side of your brain that is non-conceptual and non-verbal in its very being, but it responds to things like beauty and emotion and memory and pictures and colors and so on. And that's like half of your embodied mind, right? Mm -hmm. And so like there are – like I was listening to uh, a – like a, it was like a, he was like a monastic bishop kind of person in the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Eastern Rite, and he was talking about how icons are meant to be prayers or worship songs in like how you experience the picture itself, gotcha. and that you he said they're supposed to embody mysteries that we can't turn into verbal theology. Hmm. Like we make these paintings, and in the Eastern Church they're kind of like the other half of our theology, yeah. and we we create them in picture form because part of the human soul and many of the mysteries of Christian faith aren't verbalizable, mm-hmm. right? Well, if you're not a romantic at all and you're just an empiricist, right? That all just sounds stupid to you. Yeah. It's like you're probably also the person who falls out of love with your wife in five years too. Yeah. You know, true. And, and find right. somebody else with perkier boobs and you right. think that you're just like being real when yeah. you're really being inhuman. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's freaking, if you don't have, if you can't check yourself with that, I think you can, yeah, you get, you get into these situations where you become Ayn Rand <laughs> and she was having affairs and doing terrible things and nothing's ever like, you don't, you don't ever, everything's stale. I think you just become stale and everything becomes really gross. So. Yeah. If you believe in enlightenment so much that there's nothing above you, you've, you've like overcome all of the guardians so much that you've killed all the gods I actually think that's a horrible human experience. Yeah, it would suck. And false because you can't kill all the gods. You can kill most of them, but not the one that lives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Freaking C.S. Lewis is going to write a book about uh, uh, Susan, you know, how Mm -hmm. she was the only one who walked away or who thinks that Narnia is not real. Mm -hmm. And he was going to write a book about her, but he died before he did. And uh, I would have been interested to see how what he talked about with with her, because I feel like she's that type of person that you're that you're talking about who yeah but yeah i'm just in the narnia yeah i always thought that was really interesting that one of the kids like forgot about narnia and like actually came to believe it was a fantasy i think that that's i thought it was genius or not not niche it is interesting it's like that's a really good when i first heard that as a kid it was my dad was reading the last battle and you hear that about susan i remember just feeling as a kid like really I think that made the most impact on me out of all seven books that Susan, somebody who had literally experienced Narnia had been a part of this and Mm -hmm. had gone there and had like fought in wars and was like the, the, the high queen 
uh, got back home, got involved in the in the sophisticated things in life, and whenever the, her siblings would bring it up to her, she would say, "Oh, those are fun games that we used to play." And it was yeah. that just I hated that that she that she did I that. Know. Yeah, Lewis did a lot with sophistication. That'd be a great thing to write on. I did an essay one time on what I call the sophistication line, how we use sophistication to hide from like the basic realities of life that we need to face it, most of which are emotional. And uh, we should talk about sophistication and how that really operates sometimes. Because I think people need to become more sophisticated in a more sophisticated world. Yeah. But there's good kinds and deadly kinds, you know? Yeah. Yep. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. Well, so we want to thank, we want to thank, um, Matthew. I forget Flaherty's first name. Matthew Flaherty for sending in this. Hopefully yeah. the four of you that made it to the end enjoyed this. And um, <laughs> if you're a lady listening to this, um, we found out in our analytics that there are more of you ladies than men. You should tell yeah. tell your boyfriend, tell some guy to listen because we'd love yeah. to even out those stats. I, I said, I sent this to Nick of our, of our statistics. It's for some reason it was 84% female and 16% male. So yeah. I was that for like, like a certain number of weeks or is that like total as of now? Now I'm sure it'll even out. I mean, that was just at the time that I looked at it, but like mm-hmm. so that happens. That seems the- skewed. It seems like we should be advertising certain kinds of things. yeah well i don't even understand i always i was like i I never understood why females even listen to us anyways because i just don't feel like we're the most inviting podcast for uh young 18 to 35 year old females you know yeah that does seem weird like it makes me it makes you want to say to your wife hey listen babe there's women who listen to us (laughs) (laughs) she knows we've talked about it and and we have some theories but but yeah so my wife is a very gracious listener to me she's just she's she's just uh she's experienced enlightenment i'm not her guardian and she is not servile but she listens to me yeah she's a great friend and companion yeah yeah and and i'm probably gonna have her on again uh to do some more on uh homeschooling because because we talked about that too but um yeah. Yeah. I th- she would I maybe if like you had a limit if she could turn off your microphone or something, you know. She just Me? she was on last time and she was like, I just don't like being interrupted constantly. I was like, Oh yeah, I can see that. By me yeah. or by you or by both of us. Both of us, yeah. She's like, yeah. I- I'm saying something, you interrupt me, take it away. I completely didn't mean, run off in some <laughs> other direction. And then five minutes later you drop some sentence on me and say, Comment on this, to which I will say two sentences, and then you interrupt me again. And I was like, <laughs> You know, when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, hey, for everybody who thinks that that Nick and I interrupt people, the, these conversations are being had behind behind the scenes. You know, yeah. it's not like nobody. It's not like Nick doesn't know that he interrupts people. He's yeah. And we are like, working on some guests to bring in and yeah. to not interrupt. Actually, my daughter made me listen to Jordan Peterson interviewing some people on his podcast to listen to how to yeah. how to get angry about how much he overtalks yeah. his guests. Oh my gosh. And I, I agree with her. I feel like he needs to talk 25% less than he does on his podcast at least. Or change the format. If he wants to talk, Uh fine. Don't let, don't make it be an, a guest every episode, dude. Like uh, if you want to talk, people will listen to you. That's Jordan Peterson. I can't, I cannot believe how much he did an interview with somebody. And I think that the person maybe talked three times and it was an hour and a half. Jordan Peterson talked the whole time. I was so frustrated. I was like that waste of yeah, time I mean, I just because part of it too is you know like after a while you've heard his bits you know what i mean like he's got a lot yeah, of them but like yeah, he, you know you've right. kind of heard him and you're like you kind of want to know how they interact with what this guy says yeah, so he's got to right. talk enough 
so that when Jordan talks it, like you're like, Oh, that may, yeah, I see that, you know? But, right. Yeah. yeah. I, it didn't happen. So yeah, that's good. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to close this out. Uh, the Matthew, thanks for sending this question. in. I thought this was a really fun one. And, um, you know, if people have more questions about this, uh, make sure to, to email yeah. us and, um, and, we have and another and a way to ask us to read something that was mercifully short. If you ask yes. us to read like all of the confessions again and ask how that relates to like John four, th- that's probably not going to happen. Just so you yeah, pro- probably not. Um, but, uh, if you like this podcast, make sure you like subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. See you next time.